The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. And welcome to the very first episode of the Holding Short podcast. I am your host, Laura Matheson. We are joined today by my friend, Ben Sr. Ben has been interested in aviation his whole life and spent his teenage years researching and photographing aircraft, which only increased his passion for the industry. After completing high school, he attended Algonquin College's aviation management program, from which he graduated in 2017. He then pursued an instructor rating and began teaching at the Ottawa Flying Club, where he worked for a year and a half. In April of 2019, he was hired by Perimeter Aviation as a first officer on the Metroliner for scheduled passenger flights and transitioned to a full-time medevac first officer role in 2020. Ben, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Laura. It's really fun being on the first episode. Just starting out here, how did you get your start in aviation? So I've always really had a uh, passion for airplanes uh, ever since I was young. Um, As a kid, always researching everything I could about them, uh, mostly on Wikipedia and uh, places like that. Uh, When I was eight years old, my parents got me a, a flight in a 172 out of a local airport. Um, I don't really remember much of that one since I was eight, but I do remember uh, going up and having fun. Uh, and then for my 13th and 14th birthdays, uh, I remember explicitly asking for, for intro flights. Um, so we went up to the Ottawa Flying Club and got, uh, got some intro flights done. So 13 uh, and 14 for both of those birthdays. So that was, that was a whole lot of fun. On, on one of the occasions, I remember I got the, uh, the instructor to fly out over our house. So uh, even though it was a little bit of a far trip, uh, the instructor did it. It was, it was a, lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, at that point, I kind of knew that I, that I wanted to be um, doing this as a, as a career. Um, so after high school, I went to Algonquin College and uh, flew at the Ottawa Flying Club. Uh, I got my private pilot license, commercial license, uh, graduated from there. And then that summer, uh, I got my instructor rating. Um, I was then hired at the Auto Flying Club, taught there for a year and a half, and uh, got on at Perimeter Aviation now. So, uh, yeah, local. It was, it was a real local start. I didn't really have to travel uh, anywhere to go uh, get um, to go get my licenses like some people did. Mm-hmm. One thing our listeners will soon come to learn is that that is my truly favorite question to ask anyone who is in aviation. I, I think it's such an interesting, interesting industry, and I have loved getting to know what Spark started it for everyone. And so uh, thank you for starting off and being our first uh, first question with that, or rather first person to respond to that question. How did being a spotter and photographer inspire your flying? 
um, from when I first met you, what I knew about you was that you took really, really nice aviation photos. And so how did that play into your uh, aviation career? So uh, obviously researching all of these airplanes uh, as a kid, I would always see pictures of the planes. And uh, I guess that kind of uh, pushed me towards wanting to take pictures of my own. So um, my dad ended up buying a, a DSLR for himself mostly, but then I sort of commandeered it uh, a lot of the time. Uh, so I started at when I was 12, taking, uh, the, taking the camera and kind of getting my mom to drive us out to the airport, my brother and I. Um, so since then, we were, we were going out towards the, to the airport, taking pictures of the planes. Um, every, and every time I saw them, it would just kind of reassure me that these things are really cool and, and I wanted to be the one to fly them. So constantly being surrounded by that, either at the airport or at home, looking at my own pictures that I was taking was just a constant reminder of, of that I wanted to do this kind of thing. Now, I had not met anyone that was an aviation photographer until I met you, and I can definitely see how exploring that, the research, and wanting to make sure that you get the perfect shot, or at least a better shot than last time, would really help uh, enforce that drive and that passion within you. I, I've always really admired your photos. Thanks. Yeah. And, and when I went to Algonquin, it was kind of surprising because I thought that everyone joining was going to be like me. And turns out I was practically the only one like that. <laughs> no, I even remember having the same thing. I thought everyone else that would be in that program would have gotten into aviation because they wanted to be either an astronaut or an, uh, an accident investigator. And so when I would hear people say, oh, I want to fly the 757, I, I truly couldn't understand it. So I remember having that disconnect as well. How did becoming a flight instructor change your own flying? So I feel that uh, being an instructor, um, it just it, it forced me to have to really refine my flying skills and, uh, of course, develop uh, decision making skills uh, for when you're for when you're flying. Because if you're going to be critiquing and teaching someone on how to perform various maneuvers, you you kind of have to be able to show those uh, maneuvers pretty well in the first place so that they know how to do it. Because if you're saying, if you're showing someone how to do something, but you can't do it right, that's not going to rub off on them the right mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, so same thing with, uh, with making good decisions. So uh, like a student with very little experience is going to look up to you as a role model and they're going to be trusting you to make the, the, uh, the right decisions to be able to, to go out and conduct a safe flight and bring them back safely if things don't go to plan um, just because of their lack of experience. So they're, they're trusting you. So you need to, to be making some good decisions out there. And as a flight instructor, how much of an importance did you place personally in being a good role model and a good pilot? How did you think, how did that impact your teaching style? A huge amount because um that that's a lot of that's a lot of the job uh, because when you're when you're flying sometimes you'll you'll see some pilots doing things or you'll hear people doing things on the on the radio that you're just like I would not be doing that myself 
So if you're able to um, communicate that to your student and tell them like, this person is doing that, I don't think that's a good idea or I wouldn't be doing that. Or if you read up on like an accident report and you can, you can show a student what went wrong there, then that, that's a, that's a big portion of, of how you teach and, and how you fly. And did you feel that responsibility for every single student and for every single flight? Yeah. Instructing is something that you can't just think of as just any other job. It's because as soon as you, you start going there and, and feeling checked out about it and that you, if you're climbing into the plane and you just, you don't care about instructing, you just, it's a grind to get to your next spot. You're probably not going to be performing very well. And Mm -hmm. the student will notice and, Mm -hmm. and they're not going to be terribly happy in the plane with someone like that too. So, um, you really do have to have to have a love for it, uh, a love for teaching. So it's, uh, it's something that really helps you out and your student out. Mm-hmm. What is it like from an instructor's perspective, sending your first solo student up? So it's fairly nerve wracking because you know how this guy flies, but you also know what he needs some work on. And I mean, when you're sending a student solo, they're not, perfect but they're in a they're at an acceptable skill level to go and fly on their own and do just a, a single circuit and you are fairly confident that they will come back um <laughs> obviously you teach them to a to a good point and for your first solo you're a class four so you do have to send them up with a more experienced instructor as well for them to say that you have taught them to an acceptable level. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's you and another person that are confident in this, in this student. So it still is nerve wracking because uh, my, my student, like, I hope he does good. I hope he doesn't like break something on the plane. I I hope nothing goes wrong, that kind of thing. Um, But it is, yeah, uh, I guess I was just going to say it's nerve-wracking again for the third time. I guess you can see how it is because I'm yeah. going back because I'm going back to thinking about it. But the first student that I sent solo, I sent them on October 27th of 2017, which when I look back at my logbook, it was two years to the day of my first solo. Uh, exactly. So. Oh, wow. And it was in the exact same uh, plane as well. So, um, yeah, the, the student got to go up in uh, X-Ray Alpha Mike, and they had their first solo uh, rip around the circuit. And uh, I didn't tell him about the, the anniversary until after he got back, just so not to give him any more jitters, but I thought it was special. He thought it was special, so that was really nice. That is really special. I, I remember my first solo, which was about three weeks after yours. And uh, it's always fun getting to remember that. It's something that everyone says stays with you for life, and it does. So I think having a story like that where there's a special anniversary tied to it is, is really, really sweet. Yeah. Do you have a favorite flight from your time-building days that was particularly memorable? Yeah, at one point... I, uh, after getting my PPL and night rating, I got my, uh, my dad and my grandpa 
to come with me on a trip from Ottawa to Quebec City. Because um, at the time, uh, my grandparents lived in New Brunswick. They now live in just outside Ottawa, close to my parents. But uh, at the time, they lived in New Brunswick. So it was kind of a big deal that they came to visit. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I managed to get uh, him and my dad with me in a 172. And we flew from Ottawa to Quebec City um, one night and got, uh, got some food there and flew back. But it was very very memorable memorable just because um my dad and grandpa both absolutely love aviation and airplanes and it would have been probably the second or third time that my dad would have flown with me and the first time that my grandpa would have um my dad always wanted to be a pilot as a kid but he has an eye astigmatism, so he doesn't have the vision to be able to do it, um, but still very interested in airplanes. And my grandpa was a uh, radio mechanic on F-86 Sabres in the Royal, uh, the Royal Air Force for uh, the UK. Um, so there's a lot of aviation love in the family, I guess. So it was, it was really special to be able to take them up with me. Um, and, and show them that I can fly a plane and, and get us to and from safely at night uh, while map reading. So that was, that was very special to me. Mm -hmm. It would be. I can think of some of the flights I've had with my parents and my family members, and there, there's something about it, getting to go flying with your folks or, yeah, with your folks. And I... I think it's so wonderful that you got to have that flight with your dad and your grandpa. That would just be so special. <laughs> what were some challenges you faced finding that first flying job after instructing? Now I'm very aware I'm asking that at a time when the industry is very different, but when you were first applying for your flying jobs beyond instructing, uh, it was very different for you. So when I was first applying to other companies, uh, it was really, we were really still inside the pilot shortage. So any company with a job posting on Av Canada or PCC would probably be receiving a few hundred applications from any prospective pilot looking to move up in the industry, uh, just simply because there was so much movement at the time. So um, I did apply to several several companies, dozens. And dozens. Um, I got a few interviews at, at a couple, uh, got rejected from a couple. Um, but fortunately, I didn't have to wait too long to, to get an offer from Perimeter. Um, when was it? It was probably four or five months. But yeah, four or five months that I was waiting for uh, to start Perimeter, actually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it really wasn't super long. I was still fine with instructing, so um, I was still enjoying that. Uh, so it wasn't a huge burden for me. And uh, yeah, perimeters worked out fine. Um, I don't. I don't really have any regrets at all. Mm -hmm. Now I remember you getting the call that you got that job, and I remember where I was when I, you called me to tell me. And I just was so over the moon, absolutely thrilled for you. And I, 
I remember getting that call very, very fondly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember calling you there. (laughs) (laughs) Can you explain to us more about the day-to-day of medevac flying? I think it's a part of the industry that's become uh, particularly highlighted over the last few months with the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's not something that I think a lot of pilots find themselves doing. So would you care to explain a bit more of how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So there's going to be some specifics to perimeter with this one because every uh, medevac company has a different schedule um, and kind of workflow. But the way that perimeter does it is that we've got a week on, week off rotational schedule. Uh, We have a fairly unique duty day structure, which I'll touch upon later. But um, as far as the day-to-day goes, when you're, let's say you're on rotation and you get a call from your dispatch saying that you've you've got you're getting put on a trip, and that you need to go to a, a certain airport. Um, that's arranged by MTCC, so uh, the Medical Transportation Coordination Center of Manitoba, and they'll assign trips to various companies in the province based on crew positioning, uh, availability, their duty time. Uh, stability of the patient, uh, what type of trip it is, that kind of thing. Um, so there's there's probably half a dozen companies around the province that do that kind of thing. But um, if a, a call goes into perimeter, now we, we're going to want a weather check. We're going to want to, of course, make sure that we can make it into that airport. Um, we're going to want to make sure that we have enough time left in our day because um, – it's on us if we if we bust a duty day. So we want to we we have to be aware of our own time left. Um, so anyway, once our day gets started uh, by receiving a trip, we've got 15 hours of duty time available to us. So uh, think of that as like a timer that starts. So um, once we complete the trip and we uh, we're at our crew base apartment. Regardless of remaining duty time, a new timer starts. So that's a nine-hour timer, and that is our rest time. So uh, this is known as a rolling duty day. So once the timer, the second one hits nine hours, like your rest one, it means you're refreshed and you can be called again for 15 more hours, regardless of previous duty time, because that duty day is considered finished at that. Uh, so it can be a little confusing at first. Uh, you get used to it. Managing your sleep is super important while you're you're on that kind of schedule. Um, yeah, uh, more about the day-to-day of, of my flying. Uh, main, mainly you're flying into reserves. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my base is Thompson. So that's one of the two places. I mean, there's more places here that have hospitals, but... It's one of the two primary places that we go to as perimeter. Thompson, um, Manitoba? Thompson, Manitoba, and Winnipeg, Manitoba. So Thompson is for things that are um, uh, non-critical, really. Um, so things like a broken arm or, uh, uh, I don't know. Can't really get too much into specifics, but like milder cases would uh, would head off to Thompson. More urgent critical care um, calls would generally go to Winnipeg. 
Um, and it also depends on bed availability at the hospital too. So if Thompson has no beds available, then we'll go to Winnipeg. Um, so generally you're taking off from Thompson, going to a reserve, uh, picking up the patient, coming back either to Thompson or Men- or, uh, or Winnipeg, dropping off the patient. The medic will go to the hospital with them. You'll have to go pick them up. Um, or if it's in Winnipeg, they'll get a taxi back to the, to the hangar. And then you kind of just wait on the next trip. If you're in Thompson, you just go back to your crew uh, apartment and then the rest timer starts. Um, if you're in Winnipeg, then when you're in the crew lounge there, you do not have a rest timer because you're at work and um, it, you're not at a suitable rest facility, I should say. There's no beds mm-hmm. there. There's no way to rest. So, um, yeah, uh, waiting for the next trip is something that can be kind of boring. <laughs> um, but our, our dispatchers usually get on it uh, fairly fairly in a fairly timely fashion. And even if there's no trip, then what they can do is they can reposition us so they can have us fly back to our crew base because Thompson isn't the only base that perimeter has. There's two bases in Thompson. I'm one of the Thompson one crews. And then there's a crew in Cross Lake. There's a crew in uh, Oxford house. And uh, there's another crew in Island Lake. So there's, um, how many is that? That's five crews up north generally, unless one or more is down in Winnipeg. So they, they generally like to keep the northern staffing fairly high. So when we don't have much to do and we're in Winnipeg, they generally want us to be going back up north. So there can be some long-distance flying. I mean, relative, right? Because an hour and a half to two hours is long distance for us. Um Short distance, probably the shortest air time that we get is 16 to 17 minutes. And that is from trips like Thompson to York Landing or Thompson to Cross Lake. That's pretty short. Um, so there can be quite varied flight times, which may, which keeps things interesting. How has COVID-19 impacted your job? It's impacted in a couple different ways. So... Um, in general, the amount of calls that we do has actually gone down and you might not think that would be the case, but it's mainly because the province has issued a mandate to, um, reduce the amount of non-urgent surgeries and, uh, procedures. So they just want people out of hospitals in general to, to keep uh, space available for urgent critical uh, patients like mm-hmm. COVID or other, like a car crash victim or something. Yeah. Um, for us, there's, apart from having to wear protective equipment, um, there hasn't been a huge amount of change. Uh, yes, we do COVID positive transfers. We do COVID suspect transfers. So people who have either tested positive or they, they have a couple uh, symptoms of COVID on, on one of the screening questionnaires. Um, so those would involve putting on a whole lot of PPE. So gowns, gloves, N95 masks, goggles, uh, sanitizing 
uh, very frequently your hands with uh, with an alcohol rub, uh, keeping your distance obviously from the uh, from the patient. If they're a stretcher bound patient, then you it's practically impossible to keep your distance from them because you have to physically load them into the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are wearing uh, gloves. They're wearing masks. They've sanitized. So as long if they're not actively coughing, then you're pretty much okay because even if you touch them a bit, you're touching them with a gown and that gown is single use. You take it off so that you're taking it out from the inside out. You're not touching the contaminated parts. And then once you've taken it off, you're sanitizing yourself. So mm-hmm. there's there's really very little risk if you do it properly, which is what we're trained to do. Um, for the medics going into the hospital with patients, it can take longer because they have to do their charting and reporting on uh, on see-through pages because they cannot be touching their own personal gear mm-hmm. uh, just due to cross-contamination. Uh, so once they finish charting on their see-through stuff, they have to get out of the PPE, sanitize, and then rechart onto their permanent stuff to give to the to the hospital that they're when they're dropping off the patient. There are higher wait times generally because there's a little less beds. It depends on the uh, on the hospital they're going to. Like Winnipeg has several hospitals. Probably the busiest one is uh, HSC, so Health Sciences Center. Um, that's probably where you get your your longest wait times there. But that's that's a very common one that we go to. Mm-hmm. What is your ultimate aviation career goal? So you think this one's a funny answer, but I don't even really have one to be honest with you. Um, I mean, I, I, everyone's kind of got the thought of like, Oh, I'll go fly a bigger plane, whatever. Um, but for the most part, I'm just kind of living in the moment, uh, especially since COVID hit because the vast majority of companies are not hiring at the moment and they're not going to be hiring back in large numbers for several years, I feel. So I'm not going to be moving from where I am for a while. So what's the point in in planning? (laughs) I'm just going to. Just gonna keep trucking along here. Um, I just, I just want somewhere that I can. Uh, I want to be somewhere that I can enjoy going to work every day. Um, love where I live and loving the lifestyle that I have. So um, I have some friends right now that try to plan out their whole careers like twenty years ahead, and they're they're specify like, oh, I'm gonna go to this company uh, in so many years. I'm gonna go. Uh, here in several years, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go captain there. I'm going to do this. I'm going to have a Lamborghini in three years. It's like, <laughs> and and they always seem to be changing their plan every two or three months or something. So I just, I tend to not focus on that. I'm just, I'm just living in the moment, really. <laughs> I know I'm one of those friends that has their career planned out almost monthly for, for a while. And when I think about what I want to do within aviation, it usually comes down to the fact that I think the entire industry is fascinating and I kind of want to do it all. So uh, for some of, for me and some of your other friends that change their plans every two, three months, it's probably because we just want to do so much that it's hard to sort of pinpoint exactly what it is you want to do. 
and you're right. There's so many different paths. There's like, there's, um, there's, there's instructing, there's survey flying, there's crop testing, there's airlines, there's medevac, there's, there's so much. It's, it's a varied industry. Like you're always flying a plane, but there's so many different roles that you can play while you're flying the plane. So it's, it's very cool. Mm-hmm. And I, I even think about some of the aviation sort of support roles, uh, even Transport Canada, the Transportation Safety Board with uh, regards to safety and regulations. I, I, I think aviation is truly fascinating. And I'd love that through this podcast, I get to look into so many different parts of the industry and meet people from all different parts of the industry, because there are so many jobs and roles that people don't know. And uh, I love getting to to learn and figure them out. Absolutely. What advice would you have for someone looking to get into aviation? So unfortunately it's not a great time right now to be getting into the professional pilot industry. No, um, it's not, not ideal. But, but nothing is really stopping you from pursuing a private pilot license and having fun flying your, by yourself or with friends and building up hours on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, when airlines do start hiring, they're going to they're gonna look at you who has, I don't know, like a whole bunch of pilot and command hours from flying your, on your own versus someone who just waited to get into the industry and has almost nothing. You're going to get hired before they will. Um, you'll also have some experience when you go get your commercial license or instructor rating. So you'll, you'll ideally be a better pilot at that point, as long as you're disciplined with, with yourself and how you fly. Mm -hmm. Um, I think in a few years when they do start hiring, companies are going to want more experience than they previously did. So getting hours sooner rather than later would be great. However, you can, you can get them. Mm -hmm. Um, Get your PPL, get your commercial. It'll help you with your flying skill. You can get an instrument rating, keep it current. Um, keep your eyes on the, keep your eyes on the, on places like Av Canada or, or Pilot Career Center because that's where a lot of jobs are posted. And you'll probably, it's, it's probably going to go back to being like a few years ago where you had to start out at a bush operator and and work your way up a bit so um keep your eyes on those and get some flying experience because all that is going to be really valuable for the future i definitely agree and i think another big part of the industry which is something we've seen uh classically within aviation is networking i think a big part of it going forward will be related to who you know for sure Please share with us a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career. So I've said this before, and I'll probably still be saying it for a long time until something can top this, (laughs) but (laughs) you know where this is going. So in 2016, after, uh, like during Algonquin and after several of us had gotten our PPLs, um, the auto flying club put on a BC trip. So we flew 172s and a Beechcraft Duchess from Ottawa all the way out to Vancouver. Uh, it took us, what, three days to get uh, to go out west? Two and uh, a half. Two and a half, yeah. Yeah, that's right, two and a half, because we landed kind of early afternoon there. Um, and two days to get back. Uh, 
how long did we spend there? Like five days or something like that? Because we got, we were getting weathered out at the end where we just couldn't leave. But um, yeah, so getting to see the, getting to see the country flying across it um, from four or six, 8,000 feet as we were slowly getting pushed up in altitudes due to the rising terrain Mm -hmm. uh, was very cool. It was, it was something that I had never experienced at that point. Um, Getting to see a whole lot of new provinces, a whole lot of new terrain, the great plains around, around Manitoba, the Southern edge of where like the, the land gets kind of craggly and, filled with tiny little lakes around Saskatchewan, Alberta, where you fly over the, the um, very interesting landscape where it's like these rivers that are just cutting through the land and some, uh, some crop circles, but mostly just empty land and then getting to see uh, Calgary and then the Rockies flying through them Um and then flying down to Vancouver where kind of the, the mountains open up a little bit and you just have this very cool channel leading you right towards the, the city and the ocean. It was really, really cool. And I think it'll probably be a while until something can top that. Um, I recently got Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020. And mm-hmm. from the moment that I, from when I saw um the graphical fidelity of the game, I knew that I would be recreating the BC trip just at oh my home gosh. <laughs> and flying a 172 across the country. I'm going to start out in Ottawa and I'm going to all the, I'm going to go to all the little airports that we visited and I'm going to enjoy every second of it because it's just my highlight of my career so far. <laughs> and I, I, I remember asking you that question and I was, surprised and touched that that is for you a career highlight because you and I were in the same plane all the way to Vancouver and that was the first time I'd ever been above 3,000 feet. (laughs) I remember that trip so fondly, the the landscapes, the sunsets, how hot it was when you were flying west (laughs) with the sunsets. Um, No, I, I remember that trip so fondly and so the fact that it is such a career highlight for you uh, really reinforces how much of a career highlight it was for me because I got to do that trip with my best friend. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And we weren't even best friends at that point. <laughs> no, we weren't. We became best friends because of that trip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what else was I going to say? We, we had a bunch of GoPros on that trip that we had inside, uh, inside some of the planes. And at the end of it, I was given all the SD cards and I got tasked with making a video of it. And I put together, I think, a 20 minute long video. And even now, every now and then I go back and I watch the video just in its entirety, just to, to see the memories. And it's it's really great. <laughs> I, I will gladly admit that I every now and then go and rewatch it, too. <laughs> Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? So I'm on Instagram, of course. Um, My username is bensenior97. And 
for those who want to check out my photography, I've got a website for that. Uh, it's flickr.com slash photos by Ben Senior. And it's Flickr, F-L-I-C-K-R. We will have both of those uh, links in our episode description for our listeners. And I definitely recommend looking at Ben's aviation photography. Ben Senior, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searles. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us. Thank you.